So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, and then you might want to put a finger over at Luke chapter 19 because we are going to go there in a bit just to uh, see what Luke had to say and what he added to this situation. While you are turning to Matthew 21, I just got a text from uh, Ken Greenwood asking us to pray for his neighbor who uh, collapsed um, uh, either during the night or early this morning, and they took him to the hospital, and they're very concerned uh, for him. And so we will pray for him as we uh, pray for the message. So we want to hold that gentleman in prayer. And I don't know if he knows the Lord, but let's just assume he doesn't, and let's pray for him during that time. And I'm sure many of us may know someone who's going through a difficult time or maybe um, ill or under the weather, um, and especially those that we, we've been praying for on Wednesday night who don't know the Lord going through a difficulty. And so we'd like to pray for them as well as we uh, enter the, the time of studying the Word of God together. So Matthew chapter 21, just to keep you uh, exercised at home, stand up, stretch your legs one more time. We are going to read uh, Matthew chapter 21. I'll read and you listen along, uh, Matthew 21, uh, chapter, uh, verse 1, rather, down to verse 11. The triumphal entry. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and uh, set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their garments on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitudes said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Lord, thank you for your word this morning, and as we have read it, I pray that it's already been stirring our hearts, and that we are ready to hear and to receive all that you have for us as we consider this wonderful and familiar passage of Scripture this morning. And Lord, we pray for the Greenwoods neighbor, uh, Jerry, I believe is his name, and we just ask you to be with him and to touch him this morning. Lord, whatever is going on with him, if he doesn't know you, we of course pray that he would come to know you through this, and we pray that Ken and Cheryl would just be able to minister to this gentleman and his family. And Lord, for all those people that we know with whom we are associated who might be sick or under the weather or perhaps we even know some who have been affected by coronavirus, we ask you, Lord, to be with them and bring comfort to them this morning. May the name of Jesus become precious to them, just as it has to us. In your precious name, your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, every year we come to this passage of Scripture, we come to this time, to this day, and it's interesting when I think about the different holidays as we come to them, the Christian holidays such as Easter and those kinds of things, uh, Christmas. Uh, with Christmas, we have the familiar stories that we read, but we have also multiple passages of Scriptures, and they bring slightly different perspectives uh, to the situation or to the story. But with this day, with Palm Sunday, with the triumphal entry, all four Gospels have an account, but all four Gospels, while there are minor differences, are remarkably similar, and they're all talking about the same event, and they give very much, uh, very, very similar details about this event. So there's not a lot of variety in the sense of different aspects of things that we can consider when we think of this day. Now hold that thought for a moment 
And I'd like to sort of draw something to your attention. You know, every year in our society, at least in American society, we have all of these award shows, right? Uh, where the red carpet is rolled out and where people make a splash with their grand entry. We have the Oscars, the Emmys, the Grammys, the SAG, the Screen Actors Guild Award, and all of these different awards. And the interesting thing about those shows is while they're set up to honor the people in that particular field, maybe it's film, maybe it's theater, maybe it's music, that while they have that, something that's common to all of them is the red carpet. And what often it, those shows become about is not so much who won an award for what, but it's about who made the biggest grand entrance and who made the biggest splash with their entry as they came in with their outrageous uh, clothing or costume and that kind of thing and how they acted and portrayed themselves as they were entering or as they were leaving. As you think about this day, with Jesus, as we think about the triumphal entry, as we think about Palm Sunday, I would like to suggest to you this morning that Jesus made an entrance that was unforgettable, and it wasn't because of what he was wearing, but it was because of who he was and who he revealed himself to be on that particular day. You see, prior to this point in Jesus's ministry for the previous three years, he was ministering and going about sharing the good news of the gospel and revealing who he was as the son of God, but he was doing it publicly, but he was doing it in a very covert way. And every year as the different feasts came and Jesus went to Jerusalem, often he would uh, go in sort of a covert manner and uh, sort of take the back door into the feast and wasn't there to really promote himself uh, yet because he kept saying over and over throughout the gospels, my time has not yet come. I'm not yet quite ready to reveal something about myself that I'm saving for a later point in time. And I'd like for you to understand with me this morning that Palm Sunday, this day, as Jesus was entering Jerusalem at the beginning of Passover week, this was the day that Jesus chose to reveal something about himself, to reveal that he was God to reveal that he was the Lord, that, to reveal that he was truly God incarnate. And so as Jesus came into Jerusalem on this day, he came in to make an entrance, to make a splash. So as we had just read in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 21, it says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. So what had happened is Jesus had uh, come to the area of Jerusalem and often he would go and stay in Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And if you were looking at a map and trying to understand where was Jesus um, physically in respect to all of these things, if you could look at a map of Jerusalem and you know we typically orient our maps north up, so there's north, south, east, and west, just to the southeast, of Jerusalem was the Mount of Olives. And at the base of the Mount of Olives, between the Mount of Olives and uh, the southwest cor southeast corner of Jerusalem was the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Mount of Olives, as we call it, is really more like a ridge or, or a large hill. And as you go up and over that ridge and down the other side, right at the bottom of the slope, you come to a city called Bethphage or a town. And then just to the right of Bethphage is Bethany. So Jesus had been staying in Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And as the, the crow flies, as you go over that hill and go down to the city, it's really just a little over a mile, uh, maybe a mile and a half from Bethany over to the city of Jerusalem. And so we enter the story that Jesus was coming near to Jerusalem, as it says, and he came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, so he had left Bethany. And uh, as he came there, he said to these two disciples that they should go into the village opposite them, which we believe was the, the village of Bethphage. And immediately you will find a donkey uh, tied to, and a colt with her, loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. 
All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. So as Jesus did this, he knew he was preparing for his entry, but the plan was unknown to the disciples. And so as they went into this village, uh, I imagine to them, although they had been with Jesus for three years, that this was a bit of an odd request to them because Jesus said, hey, you and you, I believe it was Peter and John, I want you to go into the city, walk down the street, and when you see a donkey and her young colt, her young foal, her baby, uh, tied up next to her, um, go bring them to me. And it might be natural that the master, of course, of those animals would say, hey, what are you doing, thinking someone would be stealing them. And he said, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And as we read the other accounts, we find that that is exactly what happened as they were uh, loosing the donkey and her, her young offspring, that the owner came out and said, hey, what are you doing? And I'm glad that Jesus had prepared them. Jesus had said, if anyone says anything to you, here's what you say to them. I find great comfort in that because Jesus prepares us, doesn't he, with his word. And as we read the scriptures, and whether it's the Old or the New Testament, the Bible prepares us for what we should say to others. You know, there's a verse in the book of 1 Peter when it says that, that we should be ready always to give an account of the hope that is within us or to provide a defense of the hope that is within us. So that presupposes that others would see that there's a hope within us, that they notice that there's something different about us, not just that we're a positive person or we're not a positive person, but that they would notice something about the life of Christ in me and in you. And so as we read the Word of God, the Word of God prepares us to be able to respond to people. How am I ready to give an account or a defense for the hope that is within me? And the answer is very simple. It's Jesus. It's my testimony, isn't it? It's what the Lord has done for me. And it's what the Lord wants to do for you and for anyone who is willing to consider the claims of Christ and to believe in what the Bible has to say about who Jesus is. And so Jesus had said to these two disciples, if anyone says anything, simply say to them, the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. And it's interesting how Matthew tells us here in verse four, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, and then in verse five, he quotes here from Zechariah chapter nine saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. Now, Matthew, as the other gospel writers, is writing in retrospect, I don't believe that the disciples knew Zechariah 9, the Zechariah prophecy, at that moment as they went and they simply spoke the word that Jesus gave them. But Matthew and the other gospel writers are telling us that this was done for a specific reason. This was in fulfillment to a 500-year-old prophecy, a prophecy from Zechariah, a couple of verses that... As you read them in their context, as is so often true when the New Testament quotes Old Testament prophecies, we read them in their context and to our enlightened minds, meaning those of us who know Christ and we've read the Bible or we've read the New Testament, reading those Old Testament uh, quotes in their context, sometimes they seem a little out of place, but they do make sense to us. And we look at them and we say, that must be messianic. It must be speaking of Jesus, the Messiah. But here, Matthew telling us and telling the Jews to whom he was writing, this was in fulfillment of this prophecy. And so this reminds us of something very important that we're going to be reminded of several times this morning, that God's word is always true. God will always keep his word. God's word will always be fulfilled, whether it's prophetic or whether it's a principle. You see, we, we choose to believe God's word because it's true. But if we choose to ignore God's word and disobey it, effectively saying we don't believe it, 
it's still going to come true. And if we choose to ignore the, the truth-based principles that are in God's word, then we will be affected negatively because of our disobedience and because of our lack of faith. And God tells us here, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. God was going to take a prophecy that had not yet been fulfilled in his prophetic timetable. And he was going to bring it to bear. He is going to bring it to fulfillment, to fruition, to a completion on that day. So the disciples went, they did as Jesus commanded. And I think that's, that's a verse we probably ought to underline to remind ourselves that as disciples, we should have the attitude and the desire to do what Jesus commands, to do what he says. Then they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and then set him on them. So they didn't have a saddle or anything like that. And so if you've had any experience with, with animals, especially horses, you know that before you put a saddle on or usually before you put a person on, you at least put a blanket or some kind of covering on the animal because the animal does sweat. And at the same time, it's good for you to have a little protection as well so that you don't slide around and fall off the animal. Uh, so they covered the animal's back with their garments and then they helped Jesus get up on the donkey. And then uh, a very great multitude gathered. And as Jesus left Bethphage and he was on sort of the eastern slope, came up over the hill of the Mount of Olives and then began to make his way down. And I'll never forget when I was there, just standing there on the Mount of Olives and looking at sort of a, a squiggly road that winds its way down the mountain, down the hill. And as, oft, as is often true, the roads that don't just go straight down the hill, they, they wind so that it eases the journey, it eases the burden on the animal who's pulling a cart or you know, hauling a load or that kind of a thing. So that there's this sort of wavy road that goes down the side of the hill. And it's interesting since this is the beginning of the week where the Passover feast would be observed, Jerusalem had uh, you know, just filled up with all of the pilgrims who had come in for the feast. And as these pilgrims had come in, it's estimated that there were between two and two and a half million uh, people that had come into Jerusalem to prepare to celebrate this holy week of the feast of Passover. And so all of these people are there. Now, this very unique thing is happening on this day that had never happened on any other days or any other years when the, the first day, Sunday as we call it, the first day of the week occurred in all those previous years of feasts. These people were uniquely drawn together. So I want you to understand that this event was not an organized event. It was not a parade that was prepared. This was a spontaneous thing that happened at the impulse of the Holy Spirit. And so these people knew that Jesus was coming. Now remember I said to you that Jesus had always said, up to this point in his ministry, I'm not going to do this or that because my time has not yet come. And often when Jesus would go to certain feasts, he would go later, maybe a day later, or like I said, he would, as it were, come in the back door, but not this day. Jesus had let it be leaked out. He had made known that he was coming, that the king was coming. And so Jesus, because of what he had done, his reputation had preceded him. How Jesus had healed people, how he had cast demons out, how he had resurrected the dead. Indeed, just a short time before this, he resurrected Lazarus. John chapter 11 tells us about that. All of these things Jesus had done and people knew about who Jesus was. They had heard about these things. They had seen him heal the blind, heal the lame, heal the lepers. His reputation had preceded him and people knew who he was. And they knew Jesus was in the area. They knew he was in the city. And so somehow it was all communicated and it came together that as Jesus sent the disciples into Bethphage to get that donkey and its little colt and then to sit on them and ride them and come over that hill and as he tops the hill, the people are gathered. You need to understand this is a spontaneous thing that the Holy Spirit did. This again was not a prepared event. It wasn't something that happened every year on the Sunday before Passover. 
The scriptures tell us that the 10th of Nisan would be the day that the Passover lamb would be selected as they are preparing for the Passover meal. And Passover would begin later that week on Wednesday at sundown because that day at sundown uh, would be the beginning of the new day. It was, they counted their days to be sundown to sundown. So Wednesday at 6 p.m., roughly speaking, would be the beginning of Thursday. And so they would have uh, already gotten their preparations together for the Passover meal. And so the previous Sunday on the 10th of Nisan, uh, the, the, just a few days before Passover, would be the day that the Passover lamb would be selected by each family and by the priests so that the priest would go in and make the sacrifice and the people would go into their homes and that they would, of course, prepare the Passover lamb. So Jesus, as he makes his entrance, is presenting himself not only as their king, he's definitely doing that, but he's also presenting himself as the Passover lamb. So let's continue with our story. And a very great multitude, verse 8, spread their garments on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, let's pause there for a moment in the middle of verse nine. So what's happened here is the people are doing something that would have been common with respect to when a king or a high ranking official would enter a city. They would be told well in advance that that person was coming. And especially if it was a king and since they were under Roman rulership, whenever a Caesar or someone like that would come in, they would do this kind of a thing where they would understand which road are they coming in on and they would position themselves along the road to give a royal welcome to the, the king or the, that person coming in and they would do different things to honor as they enter. Uh, they would spread their garments down on the road as it were to provide sort of a rolling out the red carpet as that person came in or cut down branches of trees and do anything to sort of just show honor, to, to pay homage to that person. But here on this day, they're not doing it for a dignitary. They're not doing it for a royal official. They're really doing it in the way it's always meant to be done. They're doing it for the Lord himself. And so these people again, are moved by the Holy Spirit. Again, it was not a planned or organized event. And as this great multitude begins to impulsively spread their garments on the road, imagine now the modern day thing would be someone is coming into town who is a high-ranking official or a dignitary, president, whomever it might be, and it would be as it were that we gathered and as the president or whomever is entering, that we lay down our garments. We take off our coats, perhaps, and we throw them down to make a road, to, as it were, roll out the red carpet. That would be sort of the modern-day equivalent. And so these people began doing that. And not only that, but they, had, they, they cut down palm branches, and uh, they brought those branches and laid them down as well. And they did all these things to show their, their obligation and their honor in this case, to Jesus. And yet, they didn't realize they were fulfilling prophecy. And they also didn't realize that God was fulfilling prophecy. So again, in verse five, Zechariah's prophecy, your king is coming to you. The Jews, especially the teaching Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees, they understood that, that verse in Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, was speaking of the Messiah. And so here, this is happening. Zechariah is being fulfilled. The king is coming riding on a donkey. And now the people begin to cry out what we read this morning in Psalm 118. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And that scripture was well understood to mean the Messiah has come. The son of David was a messianic reference. He who comes in the name of the Lord was a messianic reference. Hosanna was a messianic reference. And so the people began to impulsively and instinctively cry out this phrase from Psalm 118. 
And it's interesting to note that Psalm 113 to 118 are known as the Hallel Psalms. They're part of the Psalms of Ascent. And whenever the people of of Israel, when, when the Jews, the devout Jews, as they would travel from their home to Jerusalem for the feast, part of what they did as they traveled in their entourages is they would sing these hymns unto the Lord as they ascended from wherever they were to Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem was on a hill. There were seven hills or mountains that sort of made up Jerusalem proper. And so at some point as you're about to enter the city, you would be ascending up into Jerusalem. And so these people knew these hymns quite well, which means they knew the scriptures, which means they knew these psalms by heart. And so in this moment, as they are welcoming Jesus, they begin to instinctively cry out not just a particular song, but a, a verse from a song. Think about this for a moment, just how amazing this is as the Holy Spirit is moving upon these people. As they begin to cry out, laying down their, their garments, laying down these palm branches, crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And as they were looking at Jesus, riding down the Mount of Olives on the back of a donkey, they were fulfilling Scripture. They were spiritually in the Spirit crying out to God. And when Jesus had made his way down the mountain and come down through the little valley and entered the city of Jerusalem, when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved and they were saying, who is this? And you can understand why they would have said that because they've, they've heard the outcry from the people as Jesus was coming down the hill, coming down the mountain. They heard the shouts, they heard the cries. And I'm sure that these were not just people standing by the road whispering these words. They were crying them out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna, save now, bring prosperity, Lord. They were crying out these things. And as Jesus came in, the city began to be moved and to, and to be stirred. And they said, who is this? And so the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. I'd like to turn over for a moment now to Luke's account in Luke chapter 19, just to sort of pick up the story here uh, with some of the accounts that Luke brings in. And so as uh, in Luke 19, beginning in verse 28, you find a very similar account to what we had just read. And then um, as you pick it up in verse 37, that's about where we are, uh, where we just left off in Matthew 21. Uh, then as Jesus was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So you see the things that Jesus had done came into play saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd. Now this is while Jesus is riding, coming down the descent of the Mount of Olives. So some of the religious leaders are there and they said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, tell them to be quiet because they heard this as a blasphemous thing. Again, the people, as I understand this, are moved by the Spirit of God as they are crying out in this very unique situation, in this very unique gathering. And the Pharisees hearing this were offended and they heard it as sacrilege. They heard it really as blasphemy that the people would be calling out saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. That they would be acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. Because they, of course, did not believe that. They didn't receive it. They didn't accept that Jesus would be the Messiah. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these, that is those people, should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. As I was reading that, just I, I heard in my head, do you believe that? Do I believe? Do you believe? That in that moment, if those people who had been there were not moved of the Spirit and done what they did, if they didn't cry out and say those things and if they didn't take those actions, 
if they didn't lay down their garments and if they didn't lay down the palm branches and if they didn't shout from the Hallel Psalm 119, Hosanna, Jesus is saying, it would have still happened. And God would have done it this way. He would have caused all of these stones essentially to develop little mouths and they would be given a voice and they would cry out the truth of God's word. They would say, Hosanna. You see, if the people hadn't done it, God would have still accomplished it and he would have used the very stones to cry out. I don't think that this is divine herpoboli. In other words, that this is exaggeration. I believe that Jesus is saying literally, if this had not happened according to God's plan and if these people had not done this, to me this is evidence that these people were moved by the Holy Spirit. He says the very stones would immediately cry out. And I love how Jesus says that, not just in rebuke to them, but he's expressing something to us today. That God's word will always be fulfilled and his truth will always occur. His truth is true no matter what we believe. And I would like to say this about that for just a moment, just so that we understand this. So often God wants to do something in us. Often God wants to do something through us. And as we've just spent time at the beginning of this year uh, doing our series through the giftings of the Holy Spirit and understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we did that in part because we want you to understand that God, the Holy Spirit, has uniquely equipped, equipped and gifted you with things that are important to Him. He's given us all gifts and he wants us to use those gifts to serve him for his glory. And I can say this about that because I've seen it in my own life and I've watched it happen in the lives of others over the course of many years now. If a person says no to God, and if a person whom God is clearly calling or has clearly gifted in a certain way says no, God will still accomplish it through somebody else. And you know who misses out in that situation? It's the one who refused to obey. It's the one who refused to take a step of faith and say, Lord, I know you've given me this gift. I know you want me to use it for your glory, but I don't know how. So in fear, rather than obey you in faith and take a step and say, I don't know what it's gonna look like. And I don't know how it's going to go, but I'll do it anyway and just trust that you have a way and that you'll lead me in this. Rather than taking that step of faith, they take a step back and in fear they go, well, why would God want to use me? And who am I anyway? I don't really know how. And I would like to remind you in that moment to consider that you're in good company with people like Moses. When God called him and Moses said, I don't know how to speak, how, how am I supposed to be a leader? Or people like Jeremiah, when God called him, Jeremiah said, Lord, who am I? I'm just a kid. I'm just a youth. And God said, do not say that you're just a youth. He says, if I want to use you, I'll use you. If I want to empower you, I will empower you. And even the disciples, to an extent, they felt that way. They thought that way until the day that the Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost. And then they understood that God had not only gifted them, but he had given them the power to accomplish what he had called them to do. You see, God's calling is God's enabling. And God, when he calls someone, when he gifts someone, he is enabling them to do what he's gifted them to do. And so for us to be able to say, I won't, or I can't, or I have fear, or I don't know how, is ultimately to say to the Lord, I won't. And these stones would cry out. You see, Jesus was going to accomplish his will. God was going to accomplish his will, no matter what. And I would say to us this morning, as we consider this story, to consider that God wants to use you. But if, if you won't, then God would even resort to using a stone for his glory. But I can tell you this, that God much prefers to use an obedient servant rather than to use a stone. 
He'd prefer to use a human vessel, a human instrument. Why? Because we can give glory to God in a way that a stone can't. Yeah, it would be cool and it might be miraculous if the stone cried out. But it's even more miraculous for the human heart to submit to God and to cry out, Hosanna. Now, as he drew near in verse 41 of Luke 19, he saw the city. Now, here's Luke's interjection of something else. And he's the only one that, that interjected this as Jesus is riding down the side of the hill on the donkey. As he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. Now, as we read Psalm 118 this morning, in that psalm it says, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Yet, as Jesus is riding the donkey, and as the people are crying out, and certainly they are rejoicing because they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the Messiah, God's Messiah is here. He is finally, after all of these years and the longing of our, of our hearts, Jesus is here, the Messiah is here. Yet the religious leaders and, and many uh, others who followed them did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus now, in this moment, this poignant moment as he is sitting on the back of the donkey, fulfilling the Zechariah prophecy, fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 118. As he draws near, he sees the city of Jerusalem because he has this unique vantage point. And I hope that you all have the ability to go there one day and take the tour, go up to the Mount of Olives and then walk about halfway down and stop and read this passage. Saying, if you had known, this is Jesus crying out through tears, sitting on the back of a donkey, with all of these people shouting Hosanna, saying to Jerusalem, if you had known, even you especially, in this your day, the things that make for your peace. Think about what Jesus is saying. I'm coming. God incarnate, the Messiah, is coming into your city. And I'm coming into this city, not just as I have many other times prior to this day, but I'm coming today to fulfill prophecy. I'm coming because this is the day the Lord has made. And I'm coming as the Messiah. I'm revealing myself to you as the Messiah. But Jesus is also saying, I'm presenting myself to you as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The very words that John the baptizer said at the beginning of Jesus's ministry is being fulfilled that day and that moment as Jesus is coming into the city and Jesus is lamenting that their eyes are blinded, verse 42, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And I want you to note the sorrow and the heartache that Jesus is expressing because as he comes into his city, his very people are not recognizing who he truly is. Yes, some recognize that as they cried out, Hosanna, as he rode the donkey down the side of the hill. But that was the vast minority. The vast majority didn't recognize who he was, and he was weeping. And he says to them in verse 43, prophetically, even though they couldn't hear those words, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you surround you around you surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation consider what Jesus is saying Jesus is prophetically foretelling of a few years roughly 40 years from that point when the Romans would come in and level the city of Jerusalem, Titus Vespasian would come in and eradicate Jerusalem and tear it down and tear down the temple and tear down everything that had God's handiwork attached to it. And Jesus is saying, if you had known who I was on that day, if you had believed, if you had accepted me as your Messiah, you would be avoiding a catastrophe that's 40 years in the making to the future. And there's a stark warning here for us, is there not? That Jesus is 
letting us know that again, if we, when the opportunity comes as we're preaching the gospel, for example, to those who don't know him, or we're ministering to people, the warning for them is if they don't realize and acknowledge who the Savior is and they don't believe within some given period of time, whatever that is, that there will be catastrophe and disaster entering their lives. And I'm not saying that catastrophe or that disaster would be, you know, financial or whatever, or, or health, but certainly at some point in time they will meet God. And I think that's ultimately what he's referring to. But at a, at a higher level, Jesus is referring to the opportunity that is presented on that day as he entered the city. And he wanted them to know that because they didn't see who he was, because they didn't recognize it, that his heart was broken. And that's the way God is with people who don't know him. He's heartbroken over them. And I want you to know this morning that Jesus wants us to have that same heart that's being expressed here in Luke 19, 41 through 44. He wants us to have a broken heart for those who don't know him. And he wants us, regardless of our gifting, to tell others about him, to tell others about the Messiah, and to let them know before it's too late. You see, Jesus was heartbroken, and he knew that they were not going to believe and receive. He also knew what was going to happen over those next four days or so. Because some of those very people that day who were crying out Hosanna would be some of the people in the crowd on the day that he was going to be crucified where they were shouting, give us Barabbas, crucify him. We don't know this man. Some of the very ones who four days earlier were empowered by the Spirit to divinely cry out and say who he was in truth would be the same ones who later were denying him. And that is a frightening thing to consider. And then finally in Luke's account, and this was also included in Matthew's account, we find that Jesus went into the temple and began to cleanse it. Now there are some who believe this happened later that same day. Uh, then there are others who believe uh, some of the other gospel accounts actually put this on Monday. Either way, after this triumphal entry, and as, after Jesus rides into the city, and after he laments and pours out his heart through tears, and says how he feels about his people. Uh, he goes into the temple, and what does he find? As he enters the outer courts of the temple, here's what he finds. The outer courts of the temple were there uh, to be the court of the Gentiles, and it was the place where all nations could come to the temple of the Lord. Now the Jews had taken the temple and made it something that God had not intended it to be. They had, in a sense, made it their own club. And they had the seating in the temple such that the only people who could go into the doors of the sanctuary of the temple itself were Jews. And as you went in, uh, there were graduations of seating from back to front. And the very front on one side would be the teachers and the scribes and those who were honored within the teaching system. And then behind them would be the male Jews and then on the other side would be the, the females, the ladies, and they would be separated from the men. And they had this sort of caste system built into the way they worshiped. And then at the very back, there would be like a mezzanine or a balcony or something like that. And that, that would be where people who had converted to Judaism could go and come in because they weren't full Jews, but they had come to convert in faith. And so they would have the cheap seats, as we would call them today, at the very back, the place that would be hard of hearing and a poor view. And that would be where the Gentiles would go who had converted to Judaism, but then outside those doors, out in the court, would be where the Gentiles who were seekers and who were exploring could come and learn about God. It was really to, meant to be the courts of evangelization, the place where people who were inquiring about God could come and learn more about him in the outer courts of the temple. But what had happened is that that court had been merchandised. It was now where all of the merchants who had the different sacrificial animals, the birds and the pigeons and the lambs and the meal and the grain and all of that, that people wanted to come and bring for an offering, they had booths set up all the way around. 
And as you entered the outer court, as it was meant to be a place of worship, instead it was like the Gestapo, so to speak, there inspecting people, and they would look at their sacrifices, they brought them in from their, their journey, and they would say, oh, that's, that's a blemished sacrifice. That's not a perfect offering before God, but right over here, we just happen to have someone who has that very thing, so you can purchase it from them. And that would be a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. You see, they had taken the outer court, the place that had meant to be a testimony to the name of God, and they had perverted it, and they had bastardized it, and they had taken it and turned it into what Jesus now says as he comes in in fulfillment of yet another prophecy, now looking at verse 45, he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. You see, God wanted this to be the place where people came to seek him, where they would pray to him, where they would look at him and want to know who he is and know more about him. But instead, the people were really prevented from coming to God. There are all sorts of obstacles to prevent them from entering the very presence of God. And Jesus says, it's written that my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it the den of thieves. And the actual scripture that says this uh, is saying that uh, my house is a house of prayer for all nations, just emphasizing the fact that God wanted all people to be able to come to him. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And they were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. So Jesus came in to set things straight, and as he came in on this day, as he made his entrance at the beginning of Passover week, or sometimes we call it Passion Week. As Jesus came in, he came in as the Messiah, and the people were moved by the Spirit, and they spoke the word of God, and they worshiped him, and they believed in him and accepted him as Messiah, at least some of them did. But Jesus' heart was broken as he came in, even in fulfillment of the prophecies. And as he rode those donkeys into the city, he came in to present himself as the Son of God, as God's holy Messiah. And what broke his heart was not a personal sense of rejection, but the sense of knowing that re with rejecting who he was, with rejecting him as Messiah, whenever a person rejects God, they immediately invite judgment. And that broke Jesus' heart. And that's what should break our hearts as well as we consider this day. So Jesus came in to present himself as God. And yet so many people did not have the eyes to see or the ears to hear or the hearts to understand who he truly was. And so today as we begin what we know as Holy Week or Passion Week, and as we begin a time where we are going to introduce some devotions to encourage you, let me just encourage you to, to read the word. And it may be right now, if you're not consistent about that, let this week be a new beginning for you. Uh, commit 30 minutes a day. I mean, we, we have extra time, right? Most of us are, uh, you know, sheltering at home. We have extra time. We're not commuting. We're not doing all those things that we were doing before. We can't be as social as we once were. We can't go out and do all the things that we did. So that means by default, we have extra time. Let's give the Lord 30 minutes and ask him to speak to us. And I would encourage you just to turn, take any of the four gospels and turn toward the end and just go and read. You know, you have subtitles in there. And just go and read that from, from this point forward as Jesus enters and read what happens in this Passion Week and see what the Lord went through and what he did. So as we come together on Friday night, uh, on Good Friday, as we remember the Lord Jesus and we think about what he went through on the day that he was crucified. And what was the mindset of those people who were saying we had hoped that he was the Messiah? And then as we prepare ourselves for a week from today, next Sunday, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, prepare your hearts to be reminded of who Jesus is 
And that reminds me, if you don't know who Jesus is, then today we want to make sure you know that he is the Lord God maker of heaven and earth who has come down in human form and he came here to reveal himself to us. And because God is holy and man is sinful, man has to be judged. We all have to be judged for our sin. You, you see, we can't avoid judgment. We've committed a crime that's heinous and offensive to God and God must judge us. And because God's wrath must be satisfied and because God's judgment must be just, sin must be judged as well as the sinner. But because God sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin, which he did because he wants to have a relationship with us, with every human being, he sent Jesus to make the way. He sent Jesus as the perfect holy sacrifice so that we might now no longer be in danger of being judged, but now we can be loved and we can be accepted by God. We can be forgiven. That's why Jesus has come. And so this morning I would say to you, if you've never trusted in Jesus, if you've never believed in who he is, then today, let today be the day that the Lord has made and, and may you rejoice and be glad in it because today is the day that you believed in Jesus. Lord, thank you this morning for your love, for your grace, and your mercy. Thank you for the Messiah, our Messiah, Jesus. And Lord, for those this morning who have prayed and just invited you to come into their lives and to forgive them, even though we know we're unworthy, even though we know we don't deserve it, thank you that you did it anyway, and you did it because you love us, and you did it because you want us to be with you. Lord, we want to be on the right side of what Jesus cried out as he mourned that these people on that day didn't know who he was and they missed it. Lord, today for those who are missing, who are listening, but who maybe up to this point have missed it, may they miss it no more. May today be the day where they understand and they believe in Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for those of us who have believed. And may today serve for us as a, rem a reminder, as, as a stimulus to press in and to trust you and to grow closer to you and to seek you. And Lord, in these days where there is much fear and anxiety and uncertainty, we know that you are God. And whether this is a part of the beginning of the end or it's not time yet, either way, our mission remains the same, to love you and to tell others about you. And may you empower us to do so. And may we be bold in faith and do what you have called every believer to do, to tell others about Jesus. In your precious and your holy name we pray and we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you and may his face shine upon you this week as you worship him, in Jesus' name. God bless you.